Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode, we'll be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners, and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Francis Ferreira in this episode. Francis is Acting Director of Skills with the Commonwealth of Learning, the most recent step in an extensive career promoting open schooling across the Commonwealth. Francis is a passionate advocate for quality, accessible and affordable online education, as you'll learn more about. I'm talking with Francis Ferreira, Acting Director of Skills with the Commonwealth of Learning. Francis has a long history in open education, including as the first Chief Executive of the Namibian College of Open Learning and Chair of the Distance Education Association of Southern Africa. She is also a prior Distance Learning Experience Award winner with the Commonwealth of Learning. Francis, great to be talking with you. Thanks, Mark. It's nice talking to you too. Well, can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? Before I joined the Namibian College of Open Learning, I was a teacher uh, and later a school principal for a period of um, 18 years. And after that, I was formally inducted in open and distance learning when I became the first director of the Namibian College of Open Learning. So my time with open and distance learning has been for the past 26 years. So um, as you said, before joining CALL, I was director of the Namibian College of Open Learning. Um, They also referred to me as the founding director because um, as the first director, I was responsible for the strategic positioning of uh, the college. Mm. Um, But also I was working with advisors uh, to draft the Namibian College of Open Learning Act Number 1 of 1997, mm. through which this institution was established. So this was also my first um, experience in drafting an act for parliament. So Namibia just became independent in 1990, and there was a huge uh, demand for secondary education. And uh, the brick and mortar schools couldn't um, handle this deluge of out of school students. So we we were then assigned to start this college. I was responsible for overseeing the developing the strategic plan and develop a staff establishment that's aligned to the strategic plan, but also ensuring that the institution has all the components to provide quality learning through ODL and dealing with the backlash also uh, from the parents who were not happy that their children couldn't attend the face-to-face schooling and, in their opinion, had to attend second-class education. Yeah. Uh, the focus was not only on school learners for the Namibian College of Open Learning, but it also... Uh, catered for adult literacy promoters, agricultural extension and community development workers. And so my first publication was for open and distance learning during that time when I contributed a chapter to a UNESCO UNISA publication 
entitled Enhancing Adult Basic Learning, Training Educators and Unlocking the Potential of Distance and Open Learning. And the chapter that I contributed to in this publication focused on the Certificate in Education for Development, a direct response to the training needs of adult literacy promoters, agricultural extension and community development workers. Mm. So that was my first sort of involvement in writing about the value of open and distance learning and specifically for an audience which traditionally wouldn't get engaged in open and distance learning. Mm. And as you said, during that time, I was also the president um, of DIASA and the chair of the Namibian Open Learning Network, NOLNET. Now, both these organizations um, allowed me to experience various levels of open and distance learning in the SADC region, Southern African Development Community, mm-hmm. uh, including the challenges and achievements, as well as how a community of practice can strengthen institutional capacity and progress. So it was an exciting and also challenging 10 years during which period I also, as you said, received that award from the Commonwealth of Learning, which at that time I didn't know that one day I will work for this organization. <laughs> yeah. So I think in my opinion, my biggest legacy in open and distance learning was um, Namibian College of Open Learning, my mm. contribution mm. to its establishment. So when I joined the Commonwealth of Learning in 2007, as I said earlier, Mm. I first joined as the Education Specialist for Open Schooling, a position which I held for nine years. And informed by my own experience in establishing an ODL institution, I found myself during the nine years working relentlessly to ensure that any manager in any open school will have the necessary tools, resources and self-learning materials to establish quality ODL instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and find solutions for challenges which I face and for which we have found solutions. Mm. Needless to say, during that time as education specialist, I initiated, didn't author all of this myself, but 16 publications, uh, some of which I co-authored, edited, um, to ensure that open schooling have the means to provide quality ODR. On top of that, I have also authored and co-authored more than 25 publications, most of which can be found on Call's website. Mm -hmm. I think the two books in the Call Perspective series, Open Schooling in the 21st Century and Open Schooling with Open Educational Resources, Opening Doors, Creating Opportunities, uh, were my most significant contributions to the advancement of ODL in open schooling. Mm At the end of that nine years in open schooling, I wanted to make sure that I leave open schooling in a perfectly good state and cover all the bases. So I initiated the development of the graduate diploma in open school operation and management. Mm. And this diploma has seven modules, foundations, history and evolution of open and distance learning in open schools, open school systems and models, OER design, development and publication, management, student and faculty support, etc. This course is uh, being offered, I know, by the Namibian College of Open Learning, and I'm not sure by which other because I sort of took a clean break when I left open schooling. I then joined um, an initiative called Girls Inspire, 
a position I held for for six years. It's one of course flagship uh, programs. Uh, I also uh, was responsible for gender uh, until a year ago when I was appointed as acting director for skills. Over the past 16 years or so, I have engaged with ODL institutions and civil society organizations in more than 40 countries uh, in the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. It's more or less briefly my career. <laughs> Great. What a career it's been so far. So, Francis, across that time frame, you would have seen online learning um, really take off. I'd imagine it wouldn't have been much more than a possibility when you first started. Um, but now I'd imagine it's quite central to uh, thinking, planning, and also, of course, the sharing of open educational resources. Can you talk a bit about that trajectory of online education across that time as well? I think I can go a little bit back by when I was a distance education student compared to then and now where we are now, this huge uh, evolution that took place. I know when I was a student, uh, we received our assignments and our learning resources through the mail and then we had to send back our assignments, etc. Mm-hmm. The only thing that was in person was sitting the exams. Yeah. Um, if we had to to get uh, the interaction with our tutors, we had to travel and I did mine through UNISA, we had to travel to South Africa. Now you can imagine students wouldn't be able to afford always to travel and meet the, the lecturers of the university. When, it, when we started the Namibian College of Open Learning, um, it was a little bit better in the sense that, yes, the materials were still sent to the learners, but uh, we had it very well organized that on a weekly basis, they could access the tutor face-to-face sessions. It was a sort of a mix of the two uh, because the centers were in the community where they could just walk to it. Um, during that time, we introduced uh, videos that we would broadcast over the, the, the national television um, as complementing the print-based materials. And uh, when I joint uh, call as Open Schooling Education Specialist. We had a project where we developed OER for open schools uh, through funding from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, generous funding from them. And through that project, we introduced um, the staff from open schools in five countries, five country project, to online learning where they had to develop online materials. Um, and I can remember at that time, uh, we used the Moodle platform, but most of those tutors didn't have a clue what a Moodle platform was. Uh, and today, um, the Moodle platform uh, has also evolved. It is not the same platform that we used in 2008, 2009. Mm. Uh, last year, we started offering a, a gender course and uh, I was pleasantly surprised when I saw that there is an, an application where you could add the WhatsApp chat uh, and then there is this group that's automatically formed. So they now have a daily access to the tutor compared to when we started uh, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, where you could hardly communicate with your tutor. The online learning today provides uh, 
access to the tutor uh, anytime that you want to. Because of how technology developed, the tutors uh, are really accessible to, to the students. And there are so many different learning management systems that uh, can be used for online learning. The majority of the open schools that I started working with, they now have a component of online learning, uh, and which is great because that is the way forward. I remember there was a time we said technology shouldn't direct education, hmm. but we are now at the point that digital learning, digital skills, that's the order of the day. So you don't really have a choice. You, you don't really know when is technology driving the education and when is the education uh, using the technology to drive itself. My concern is, is just really uh, there where the need really is for out-of-school students. Are they able to access the online learning? Mm. Uh, and I think we all know they are not, but we cannot because they cannot access it, say we shouldn't do it because that's the future. It's a, there's no turning back for online learning. It can just become better and better. So, Francis, uh, there's been a lot of ideas and themes your work has provided over the time period you've mentioned before. What are some of the key concepts or ideas that you think are still particularly pertinent today that you'd like to emphasize? I think there are two things that that influence my work uh, because of my experience as a student, but also because of my experience as a manager of ODL, and that is quality and access. Hmm. Uh, a quality of education, so much so when I started as the open schooling specialist uh, that I initiated two publications. One is the Quality Assurance Toolkit for Open Schools and later uh, Setting Standards, Maintaining Quality, Quality Assurance Policies for Open Schooling. Those two publications, because quality to me is still important, whether it was 30 years ago or five years ago or today, because quality is really how you assess uh, any person's work, whether it is an assignment, uh, whether it is um, a task, quality to me is very important. It is much more important when you provide distance education and online learning. Uh, I was concerned during the period of, of COVID uh, where everybody was pushed online mm -hmm. that there was no quality assurance in some cases where people would just take the whole textbooks and put it online, yeah. uh, which they use in the formal school. The formal school is different. You have the textbook and you have the teacher there. But if you just put the textbook there without any support, that to me was a big challenge. So I think quality is something uh, that is very important for distance education. Um, also informed by my experience that there is a perception that open and distance learning and online learning uh, is a lower quality than face-to-face -face education, than conventional education. Yeah. So the more reason for us to ensure that we put quality products out there. So if it's an online learning, ensure that there is proper student support, ensure there is uh, uh, enough uh, uh, interaction that can take place, enough peer-to-peer -peer support and things like that. Uh, 
Um, and the second theme that I carried with me still today in the work that I'm doing uh, is access. Mm. Access in terms of uh, where can I find my education if it is uh, not in the formal school, uh, if it is online learning, uh, how can we ensure that those students in developing countries and marginalized communities also access quality education? And together with that access goes not only where I can find the education, but uh, the language, is it accessible? Because we, we propagate for OER, but majority of OER are in English. Yeah. Uh, so if, if we have these out-of-school children, say, for instance, in Bangladesh, and we want to support them through the OERs that we are developing, uh, access doesn't mean that they have access to material only, but they have access to material that they can understand. So we should look at, at all of those dimensions for access. The other part of access is then also uh, the affordability. So we can say, yes, you can access online learning. Here is a course, but can I afford to enroll for it? So those are issues uh, that's very close to my heart. And there is a lot of publications that we have done on uh, value for money, social return on investment and, and things like that in open schooling specifically. I mean, if, if we look at access, we, we talk about how many are out of school? Just recently, I saw the Global Education Monitoring Report of UNESCO where they say 244 million children and youth between the ages of six and eight worldwide are out of school. And uh, 98 million or the largest share of those out of school youth are found in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. Now, mm. If, if we want to provide them open and distance learning because they cannot go to the conventional schools. There's not enough schools. There's not enough learning resources. How do we provide access to them? So we have options, but to me, the, the, the issue is to have an option is one way, but we have to work with policymakers and uh, government officials to ensure that they integrate this in the national planning. And I think we are still a long way to go. Hmm. Uh, but we have solutions that definitely open and distance learning, online learning provides a lot of solutions in regard to access and in regard to quality. Mm, mm. It's an interesting set of themes there, quality, access and affordability. And the challenge sounds immense. So I know there's a temptation for us to think, well, online learning is the answer. Let's just get them signed up. Uh, but your caution is that, that quality and access and affordability needs to be overlaid across that. Because, of course, online education can be done very badly. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> so, Francis, it's now the start of 2023. In fact, you're my first interviewee for this new year. What are your observations about online learning and education at the present time? What are your impressions of where online education is? I think online education is, is at, a, at a very good place. Um, I think because of covid because of COVID, COVID actually uh, yelped online learning in the sense that we realized at that time what was bad online learning. And there was a huge outcry from uh, the experts in online and distance learning to say this thing that uh, education uh, systems are doing all over the world is not a good thing. 
and we have to make sure that they understand what good online learning is, what good open and distance learning is. And, uh, but also because of COVID, so many new um, ideas came out. See, how can we make it better? Mm. Um, now, I'm not a, a huge fan of MOOCs for various reasons, but because of COVID and because of the deluge and the huge demand of, 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 of students who couldn't access formal education, uh, there was also a huge increase in MOOCs focusing on specific areas. Mm. Um, I look at um, the quality of, for instance, courses you would know, or maybe not, that the Commonwealth of Learning uh, is working in collaboration with Coursera and Udemy and Grow with Google, and we offer uh, licenses to students in marginalized communities to to take courses through these platforms. And I've looked at these courses and uh, it's excellent. It's, it's really good. It is interactive. It is easy, easy in the sense that the user doesn't have to struggle through a lot of materials. The, the online learning today is, is really um, easy to navigate. Mm -hmm. uh, and the learning management uh, systems, the platforms is also easy to navigate. Uh, because in the past, if you have this thick um, textbook or the thick learning resource that you have to work through, it could be quite daunting and discouraging. Yeah. But now the courses are developed in smaller chunks. You get motivated because after each of the, the sections, the units or whatever the course is divided into, uh, you get sort of, uh, but you get motivated to continue to the next one and to the next one. Mm. Uh, but also the new micro-credentials, because of that, people are, are are working into really having excellent courses online because it's not only the out-of-school youth or the students, but it's also people who's currently in a job was highly qualified, mm, but mm. they are reskilling themselves because the job that they are trained for uh, are maybe no more available or because of COVID, they're out of a job. So they are reskilling and they're finding new skills. And so the micro-credentials is really something uh, that to me is, is an excellent way of promoting uh, online learning and making sure that people uh, get what they are uh, are looking for, uh, and it doesn't take too much time to build up those credentials. Mm. Um, but also, there are so many partnerships where you can work uh, across different countries. And I think the other thing that online learning is offering, which it didn't offer at that time, it gives you mobility in the region, gives you mobility worldwide. Hmm. Today, because of technology, we know what resonates with the students. So we should integrate it more. It is already happening, but I think there is still uh, a lot of opportunity for us to expand that and make the learning more um, interesting and more uh, inviting to students. We know that uh, there is a huge dropout rate 
for online learning. And one of the things that we can do to improve uh, that uh, the, the the retention rate is to ensure that the learning uh, is resonating with what they are interested in. So it sounds as though then um, online education has almost reached a maturing point where it can be done really well. There's plenty of examples of it being done well. Uh, the technology is certainly improving. Um, I, I don't think uh, we would have been confident to have a video conferencing call and record it at the same time even 10 years ago. Uh, so things do seem to be progressing quite well. Um, interesting too, your comments on um, the response to COVID and how you think it's actually a positive step forward for online learning. I think now I'd be inclined to agree with you that there was a lot of concern, of course, about emergency remote teaching and whether it gave the wrong impressions as to how online education might work. Um, but what you're saying is that there's now almost a realization that that wasn't the way it should be done and there's more interest in how it could be. Yes, Yes, there's definitely more interest in how it could be. But also, not only in how it could be, in the value of it. I mean, there is still, there is, there are still um, resistance to online learning. But I think we have bought a new audience in the sense that uh, the adult population who were employed, now unemployed because of COVID, they have to find a new job. Mm. They are the ones that's you know, running into uh, these rooms and say, I need a new qualification. And because if I'm a parent who didn't believe in online learning before, and I now have to go to online learning because I need to find a job, I need to find a new skill, I will be one of those uh, advocates for online learning now to the younger generation. So, Francis, the research you'd most like to see, if you opened up your favourite journal and saw the perfect journal article, what would it be about and what would it talk about? Well, the perfect article that I would like to read in a journal is about the use of technology in developing countries as it pertains to access. Mm. Specific mm. focus on gender equality uh, as well as the use of technology in technical and vocational education. Yeah. Now, the reason is right now my focus is is on skills development. My focus is on gender equality and women empowerment. So I would really like to see how technology uh, can advance um, access. There's a lot of research on that, but I don't think I have seen that article that focus really on developing countries. Yeah. Um, and maybe have a comparative study because sometimes some studies are to focus on a specific context that you cannot really apply it to a different context. Yeah. So if it is a comparative study, then you can say, okay, this is the, the criteria for this. So these are the questions that we will ask in the study and we can take it across various countries in the developing world. And you... You can then use such a study to see how can we improve the use of technology to advance access, but also uh, to advance access to vocational and technical education. Hmm. Usually vocational and technical education, you wouldn't dream of it being online. But now, uh, because of simulations and all of that, it is possible to have uh, technical vocational 
education online mm. Mm. Uh, because of video recordings that you can upload in the course material. All of that you can sit and you can watch as if it is in the real classroom. And in the work that we are doing, we find that uh, there is a huge demand for technical and vocational skills. And for us, open and distance learning is one way to address that demand. Uh, but how do we do it? So a study on that would really be something that I would be very interested uh, to see. Hmm. So Francis, as a global expert in this area, um, what do you suspect that article would talk about? What, what sort of answers would you suggest for improving access to education, particularly among girls? I would love to see policymakers in education taking this whole challenge seriously because you cannot have all of these opportunities through online learning and have all of these out-of-school youth. How can we invest in expanding access to technology. That is the one thing uh, that should be addressed. The second thing is to look at uh, access to uh, the internet, access to Wi-Fi, bandwidth, all of those things. Again, how can we address that? So to me, it's a big grand plan that should be developed. It's like drawing up a theory of change and say, this is the problem. We have all of these out-of-school youth here. Where do we want to be? We want all of them to be in school or to be in online learning or to be in open and distance learning. So how do we get there? So there are so many things to take us there. The first thing is access to technology. The second thing is the capacity building of teachers. I remember when I started in 2007 with open schooling, I said one of the things that need to be addressed is the teacher's curriculum, the curriculum for training teachers, because that curriculum is so outdated. The teachers need to be trained on online, in online learning, in ICT, and all of those things. So I think there are, there are a lot of things that, that should happen. Um, but also, um, in some of these areas, it is also a matter of, the girls are not allowed to go to school because so there is also working with the community leaders and in, in finding out how can we um, deal with those traditional uh, and, and cultural challenges because education is important. And interestingly enough, it is not only girls that's out of school. The same report shows that there is now more boys out of school than girls. The thing is, you, you ask me what research would I like to read. There, there is so much research out there, and yet policymakers are not aware of it. These publications should also be used to inform and educate policymakers. And then you have to find collaborators, because poor countries cannot afford to implement all of it. But there is so many collaborators out there that would be interested to work with them so it's a it's a it's a matter of having a whole think tank that's really interested in changing the paradigm for instance the approach that we do with the girls inspire project and we've been very successful we have the different layered approach where we focus on 
the organizations, the institutions we are working with. We focus on the communities. We focus on policymakers. We focus on the girls. We focus on employers, prospective employers. We focus on financial institutions. So it's a whole level um, of, of, of uh, constituencies that we are working with in order to get to one goal, and that is to educate the girls, to empower the girls. So it's to ensure that um, we have this plan, that we have all of these uh, stakeholders involved. There is a lot of intricacies that, that we have to look at, but open schooling, open and distance learning, online learning definitely uh, offers huge hope and also opportunity for us to address these issues. Mm. It can be so easy for us to say, well, let's just put it online. Let's just uh, solve it with online education. But there's a whole framework, there's a whole context around that that needs to be in place if that's actually going to provide a a good solution and, and good outcomes. Can we finish with two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning? Uh, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you and one who you think otherwise might have an important perspective to share? Well, there is one person um, whose work influenced me and who worked with me, um, but I'm not sure if he would be able to, to speak. I can reach out to him. Ed Duvuvier. Yes, uh, uh, yes. I think yep. you met him. Yep. So he is really, he's, he's really a legend to me in open and distance learning. And the second person, uh, she is now retired. You may have met her also, is uh, Dr. Dalveline Mievis. Mm. She's from Namibia. She was heading the uh, Polytechnic or the National uh, University of Science and Technology's Distance Education uh, Department. Mm. Um, but she's on... She has taken early retirement, but she's. I think she will be definitely available to speak to you. Mm, excellent. I can provide you with their contact details. I'd very much appreciate that. Francis, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you for everything you're doing, advocating for education. Uh, thank you so much, too, for being a leader and legend of online learning. Thank you so, Mark, for the kind words, and uh, good luck to you with the great job that you are doing in spreading the message. You're very welcome. You can learn more about Francis and her work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com. 